Hello and welcome. I'm Max Finder and this is Living 30, a podcast for people in their 30s trying to make this the best decade ever. Our 30s are a pivotal time. We spent our teens and 20s trying everything. We now have a better idea of who we are and what we want, and it's time for us to go after it. We've experienced education, both formal and informal, career success and career failure, love and heartbreak, and maybe even some births and deaths. Living 30 is devoted to gathering innovative approaches, deep insights, and lessons learned around topics like health, work, relationships, and more. Visit living30.blog and stay tuned for more interviews, articles, and to join the Living 30 community. Thanks for listening and enjoy the podcast. Hello and welcome to Living 30. I'm your host, Max Finder, and today we have Mackenzie Donaldson from as our guest. Welcome, Mackenzie. Hi, Max. Thanks for having me. Do people call you Mackie in your real life? Does everyone call you Mackie or do people still call you Mackenzie potentially? It's strange. Um, everyone that knows me really well calls me Mackie, um, but because I introduce myself as a professional as Mackenzie, and I sign emails, Mackenzie. It's it really throws people when they hear all my old friends call me Mac. I love it. I don't I don't care. Um, <laughs> I love both names, but it's just funny because it can throw people. And I've become more of a Mackenzie in my professional life. Well, hell, a Mackenzie. Okay. Well, I'm gonna call you Mackie because I know you as Mackie. If that's all right. That's absolutely all right. Okay. So Mackenzie Donaldson, Mackie, is a Toronto and Los Angeles-based director, producer, and writer. You made the Emmy-winning show Orphan Black, the award-winning digital series Whatever Linda. You just finished Snowpiercer, which was pretty cool, apparently, right, on TNT HBO. Yeah. And you have Citizen Bio premiering on October 30th, which is a – on Showtime on October 30th, right, which is a documentary about biohackers, right? Yes. Yes. It's my first feature doc and uh, it took four years to make and it finally, finally gets to have an audience. Amazing. Uh, right, right at the end of this month. I'm very and excited. is it, is it super timely with all this COVID crap? I mean, did you guys have to cover that in any way or are people, are some of your subjects investigating this in some it's, fashion? It's, it's funny because uh, so for those that don't know what biohacking is, um, well, I'm not, it's not a documentary about people that, you know, eat almost no calories and try to extend their lives. This is about um, uh, people that believe in um, doing DIY science at home. And specifically uh, we are, our film concentrates on genetic engineering and genetic biology. Um, uh, that's done at home. So a lot of people that self-experiment um, and that are working with technologies like CRISPR and stuff, but outside of the mainstream. And they, you know, a lot of them are anarchists or believe in um, open source uh, technology and things like that. So, um, and to the sharing of knowledge and um, they want to make sure that the future of our bodies and our science and uh, biology specifically is not only in the hands of corporations and the governments but of the people um so it's really interesting we finished shooting uh over a year and a half ago so we did not cover covid but it's um a real shame because 
all five of our main characters are all uh, have different um, COVID vaccinations that they're working on. Um, they've had a lot of progress. A bunch of them have uh, experimented on themselves and it's, so the film is timely with what's going on in the world, but, um, and hopefully people will go pay attention more to what these guys are doing. They're like teaching you how to make a, a vaccine at home if you so desire to do something like that and you trust them. Um, uh, so I wish that we'd kept shooting, but then I would still be in production and I'm really glad the film is done because it already took four years and I don't think I had another year in me. <laughs> would you take one of their vaccines? That might be, you might not be able to answer that, but I'm just curious, like where you landed on that, right? Like, it's funny cause you, 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 you formulated all these opinions, I guess, about their work and all the stuff that they do. And now there's like a very real possibility that you could protect yourself from the ongoing pandemic with something that they make. So is that something like, how do you feel about that? Um, I wouldn't, yet uh i will wait and see how their experiments go um on themselves and uh i i don't understand it enough and i have not put the energy into learning um and educating myself ar around what they're doing to feel like and i would say that they would say this back to me that they wouldn't um inject me with something like that unless i was willing to sort of start working with them and thinking about it with them. Um, uh, and so I wouldn't, uh, but I would wait and see. And then, you know, I, luckily I'm in Canada right now. So if, if and when there is a vaccine, it will probably be made available to me for free. Uh, <laughs> if I was in the States and it was made available for thousands of dollars and they were able to recreate it themselves, I might be down to maybe, uh, maybe, I, I don't know. I, I did let one of the biohackers <laughs> put a RFID chip in my hand. Um, Temporarily. So, no, no, it's there. It's Holy in there shit. For, for, for life, probably. <laughs> and what is, what is happening with it? Like, w w do you track yourself? No, you no, it, it's nothing like that. It's kind of the same technology that's like in, the t in your car, in your like tap credit card or something like that. So um, it's, uh, it needs a reader. Um, if I had, if I wasn't in a rental apartment right now and I could put in my own uh, um, uh, electronic door, like a pin pad door, um, or a fob door, I would, uh, make it open that for me. Um, Whoa. right now it just sends people my business card information <laughs> and they put their phone, phone near it. How enterprising <laughs> of you. It's really silly, but, uh, I don't have tattoos and I was going through a lot of life changes when we shot with, um, this man named Amal, who's sort of like, he has a company called Dangerous Things and he, um, has in put up a bunch of these in people like thousands of them um like he he put one in a woman that um starts her tesla for instance um Whoa. yeah and uh so when we were shooting with him i was i was kind of like in a big life change and i was like this is my version of a tattoo and i know a lot about them we've written them into uh we wrote them into snowpiercer it's not really brand new technology it's just brand new to imagine that it's in, like in your hand in humans yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. In your Wait, body, it's yeah. in your hand like where on your hand is it um, it's in my left hand between my um, thumb and my pointer finger, kind of like in the fleshy part. Um, yeah, that's yeah. the part how I tell if my meat is well done, medium or medium rare or rare, I guess. <laughs> that's an important part of my body. I wouldn't want my RFID tag. Oh, I, I, well, whatever. You can put um, it anywhere though. Like they're very tiny and um, you can look them up online. Just RFID 
tag or go to Amal's website. Dangerous. Wait, that's so funny that it was in place of a tattoo for you. Like it was something, what was the, what was the calculus in your head about it? It was something that you were, why do people get tattoos when they're going through life changes? That's a really good question. I don't know. Well, what was my like father, hap- my yeah. father hated tattoos, so I would never get one. Like my, it's yeah. ingrained in me. <laughs> my father also hated that. Ta- like, I mean, we're Jewish and of Holocaust descent. So like my grandparents were tattooed against their will. Um, so it carried, and there's like a whole thing about being tattooed and being in, buried in Jewish graveyards. Um, and so I, you know, I'm also terrified of tattoos. Like I'm, I'm intrigued by them. And I feel like if I got one, I would get a hundred but I'm too afraid to get that number one. That's kind of how I've always felt. Like, I'm kind of like, if you're going to get one, I just want like my whole, I just want to do the whole thing. Um, (laughs) uh, People get them, I guess, to like make sure they remember a time or mark a time um, in their life. A lot of people, some people just get them because they like them. Sorry, my dog's barking. Um, No problem. uh, (laughs) This is where it's, everything's remote. And so people have dogs and kids. And so we're, you know. Here at the yeah. Living 30 podcast, we're, we're quite accommodating. <laughs> um, and yeah, I mean, I was just, I had just gotten out of a really long relationship. I'd finished the biggest show of my life. I was moving to Los Angeles. Um, I was living alone for the first time um, because I kind of like went to university, lived with roommates, lived with my parents, lived with my boyfriend. And then this was, I found myself alone um and i was on this shoot and we i hadn't thought previously thought about it but i knew we were going to shoot with a mall um just outside of seattle and i arrived there and we like he opened his garage which he uses his rfid chip to open his garage um Mm. and uh he goes in he's like so who's gonna get chipped today and um (laughs) then my director was like oh that would be really cool if we could get some close-ups of someone getting a chip but we didn't plan this um and i was like i'll do it (laughs) And I just did it. And then in retrospect, I kind of realized it was sort of like that random thing of like going to mark a moment. And when I remember it's in my hand or it like accidentally pops up on my phone or something like that, I'm like, oh yeah, that was a what crazy you, time. What do you mean it <laughs> to your phone or something? Or like your phone recognizes it? Yeah. So you're, you know how you can like use Apple Pay with your phone? It's the same technology. So it, it's uh, radio frequency. So sometimes it just gets picked up by my phone. Well, um, when it's close to it yeah oh, that's crazy and so so it, it, signif- <laughs> it signifies the time and did you think about your dad when you were doing it you, so your your dad has passed away so is mine I, you know I, I think also about like even honoring my father with a tattoo and like a really ironic kind of half fuck you <laughs> half like uh, you know symb- uh, in a, uh, to honor him I guess it's but I, I don't think I'll ever do it but I, I think about that sometimes um I know. I think about it too. Um, I lost my dad uh, almost 10 years ago. And um, when, when about the year, a year after my dad died, my mom and my sister and I were on a trip and my mom was like, let's get, let's get dad's initials tattooed on us. And my sister and I looked at her and we were like, do you remember your husband? Like he He hated hated tattoos. This would be the worst thing to do for him. (laughs) So yeah, I do. I did think about him a little bit. I think he would have thought this was stupid, but like interesting, you know, um, uh, and you would have liked that it, it, it wasn't like on top of the skin or like visible. He didn't mm. even want me to get my ears pierced. And when I got my belly button pierced, like, I'll never forget it. I walked into the room and I showed him and my mom had taken me and I was like, dad, look. And he just looked at me. He's like, I never thought I had such a vain daughter. 
and walked out of the room. And I will never forget that. I mean, like, maybe that's why I won't get a tattoo. Like, dad's out there, that works. Right. <laughs> like, calling me vain, I was like, I'm not vain. Like, I, oh my God. And yeah. Um, so, but I think this he would have thought was uh, interesting. And as long as it wasn't like hurting my body, um, I think yeah. he'd be fine. And so you were at this, this was like the, is this the most recent and major crossroads in your life this time a couple of years ago when you were ending a relationship, leaving, you know, leaving the, the house, the home you had built with your, with your boyfriend and, and finishing a project, starting a new one, whatever. I mean, that's, that was like a, the last major crossroads that you've been on, you think? been at I would yeah I think I'm in I think I'm about to I think I'm in the middle of starting a crossroad right now another one right now just uh, aren't we all <laughs> well what, <laughs> but, what um, like is it that is it the external circumstances of the world you think or is it like some other some other indicator that makes you feel like you're at a crossroads um it's I think this is the longest I haven't worked um like in production on something um so for most of my 20s, I was like back to back to back to back working on like I would be working 12 hour days on Orphan Black and then go to set for whatever Linda for another four hours and like barely sleep. And I was kind of like nonstop. And um, I, I would say that between what's happened in the world and COVID and the lockdowns and all of that and then just the changes to our the industry I'm in, plus the fact that kind of like the documentary is wrapped up now all the projects that I have going are all development projects. So they're in different phases, but nothing is greenlit and everything's sort of um, just like floating in different stages. And um, it's giving me the time and space I really, I want, but it's terrifying to think about what I really want next. And I, I, I'm trying to, I don't, I don't meditate, but I guess we all meditate and I'm trying to meditate and direct my energy to thinking about that a lot right now. And, um, I don't see myself being in production for probably till next summer. And I don't know which project that will be. And it's kind of this, it's very, very terrifying, but also very exciting at the same time. So I would say it's a, diff, a totally different type of crossroad. Like I'm in a new relationship. I'm like settled back in Toronto right now and very happy to be a Canadian in Canada and not in Los Angeles. But, um, yeah, it's a, uh, it's a totally different than two years ago, but yeah, I, like two years ago was an insane, like my adrenaline was just pumping because it was for like a year straight being alone in LA and trying to like be an independent producer. It was, I mean, I am an independent producer. I wasn't trying to be, but I, you know, we all, I think we all have that, like, um, what do they call it? Uh, um, when you, even though I produced and been an independent person, I always feel like I'm a fraud. <laughs> I, I was, I have a question on my list for you. That says, do you have imposter syndrome and do you feel like it? it's called imposter syndrome, right? Thank you. Yeah. Imposter syndrome. So you, I definitely you felt do. It. You felt it. Oh, you, yeah. you still feel it. Definitely. All then, the time. Do you think you'll always feel it? I mean, you like on paper, your bio is sick, right? Like you've produced some big <laughs> stuff lately. Like it's, it's pretty crazy to have watched your trajectory. I mean, you you made a web series that just was successful, right? Is, is is that where things really started to take off for you? Like, when did you feel like there has to be a a time where you said, "Ah, I feel like I've made it." I, I understand you simultaneously can have imposter syndrome, but was there ever a time in the last? I mean, 
you know, several things that you've accomplished that you felt, oh, now I feel like I made it. Yeah, definitely. Um, definitely in the making of Snowpiercer, I was like, oh, I'm, I'm really good at this. And my, my partner, Graham and I, Graham Manson, who's the showrunner um, of Orphan Black and that, uh, we never, we had never worked better than when together. Like we, that was probably our seventh year of working together straight. And it just kind of felt like we really clicked in a way that we always had, but really things became um, so cohesive between us. And I, I didn't feel like an imposter. I did at the beginning, like that show is massive. The biggest thing Graham's ever done, the biggest thing I've ever done, you know, when you walk on set and it's just kind of, you're called left, right, like left and right all the time as the one with like the answers to problems. And I often had them and I was like, wow, this is like, I'm good at this. I, this is what I'm meant to be doing. And then it ends, which is the problem in my business. You right. go from like, you know, a year of nonstop around the clock work, six months with a, the same 150 people every day working 100 hour weeks it's like summer camp right like it's like going to war with a group of people and then all of a sudden you wrap production and they're gone it's an emotional roller coaster it's crazy and so it's in those times that the imposter syndrome like gets back up and running and because i want to transition now to directing more i feel like it's a whole new wave of uh, imposter syndrome even though i've directed co-directed a feature film and directed a handful of shorts like it's just sort of I really want to concentrate so that that can be something I bring to the next tv shows I produce um so you're uh, you're feeling imposter syndrome right now like in this period yeah, of time and totally. what what are you doing to um like how do you have do you have any type of practice or or different sort of things that you're doing in order to um try to find these answers that you're kind of looking for or trying to explore the things you're trying to explore? Like what, what is the schedule of somebody trying to do that, that's had your success and is, you know, looking for the next thing or looking to break into a new aspect of their, you know, career? Yeah. I mean, I, th I think I'm trying to figure that exactly what you just said out. So I'm. Let's I'm, workshop it a bit. Like what let's you, workshop it. I'm actively trying to, I'm a, I, I'm not a morning person. I'm actively trying to become one so that I can get a lot of the like producerial work out of the way in the morning so that I can leave room to then like read books and uh, write and think about ideas. And that's funny. Uh, I'm the opposite. Kind of if I don't do anything, like if my creativity and ability to write and sort of think not, not, kind of linearly, I don't know how to say it really, but like I answer all the, like I try to do the emails and the calls and all of that stuff in the afternoon and the evening because it requires less sort of creative brain power for me. I try to shift all of that other stuff to the morning. Like I can't write anything afternoon. Really? Oh, yeah. I, I like, I'm, I am the opposite. I'm definitely opposite. If I know there's like the email, like all that stuff piling up, I, I like, I can't turn hmm. it off. But I think that's probably the producer in me. Well, no. Um, so I, I, I like will, I will wake up and, you know, by the time I check my phone, the only thing I'm really looking for is something urgent. And so like on my mm. best days, I'll make it to the office and not really even deal with my phone and any of the, any of the shit. Like I don't even look at any of it until I decide to look at it. Right. Which is like sometime around lunch or something. 
I'm, I'm told, well, I'm trying to do that in just the first hour of being awake. Like I'm trying not to look at my phone or social media, especially the news these days. Like I just, yeah. did I you can't. watch the social dilemma? I mean, is that like, I haven't yet because the week that came out was the week of TIFF and um, I was doing virtual TIFF for the first time. And I had watched um, the new corporation, which is a, everyone must watch the original corporation and the new corporation. Um, their documentaries, it took 17 years to make the second. Um, and it's super, super important to watch, probably just like the social dilemma, but I watched that. And then I watched, I am Greta, which was also at the festival, um, which is the, um, Greta Thunberg climate change documentary. And I, I'll probably watch the social dilemma in the next week or two. I just couldn't watch another doc that was just going to make me terrifying. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like I, I was already in a bit of a depression from right those two I was like I can't yeah um, you know what but it's you're a smart person it's intuitive right like obviously yeah. social media is addicting and it's a problem and so you know you feel differently when you start your day not looking at your phone as long as yeah. like, delaying it as long as you can right totally and taking my dog for a walk like before looking at the phone like not using it as my alarm like simple things like that which we all know but are actually so hard to do when you've got the, yeah. the crack of the phone in your yeah. hand I've, I've stopped um, trying to, like, I, I, I try to go to the bathroom without my phone, which is that's really smart. That's so hard. It's impossible, but it's also funny. Like, you, first of all, I, like, I, I don't know if this is, you know, appropriate to be talking about, but fuck <laughs> it. Right. Like, but I'll spend less time in the bathroom, which is yeah. not healthy to be just sitting on the toilet for an extended period of time, but I'll spend less time in the bathroom if I don't have my phone. And I also have like, clearer thoughts you know and i can be more present in my life which what are you fucking oh. doing you're taking a shit essentially i'll bring it just to go pee and like find myself sitting there for 10 right, minutes like right. what are you doing like what why right um no i i hear you that's a really good idea maybe i'll challenge myself to start doing that yeah that's um, a new movement i'm starting <laughs> no pun intended right <laughs> yeah right exactly uh, <laughs> No, because like you think about the shower, like I have such creative thoughts in the shower or exactly. no thoughts, which is just as healthy. Correct. Um, yeah. But, you know, I'm not, I'm not thinking about Trump or, uh, you know, thinking about like that I don't look like that influencer and right. her awesome life and or whatever. I'm not FOMOing because my friends are together. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, it's, it's a dangerous addiction and I'm, I'm definitely feeling like, especially in the last few months of COVID and everything with more downtime than ever. And then trying to make room to be more creative. I realize I've like spent more time on my phone too, which is not good. So I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm trying. Yeah. Um, okay. So you're trying to do all of your emails and all that stuff in the morning and then, and then just have more reading yeah. and writing time. Do you have a writing practice of some kind? No, I'm, I'm developing it though. I'm developing it. I think it, it, it definitely has to happen after I've done something active. So I'm also working out a lot. Um, I usually work out in the middle of my days and then try to schedule calls and everything in the mornings or early afternoons so that then the late afternoon I can like start cooking and write and then start cook. Like, you know, like I, I find it hard to sit down and just do everything at once. But um, I feel like if I, I'm like, oh, if I put, if I do that small house task and then do 30 minutes of staring at a blank page and then I know I get a break after that because you know, the bread is in the oven or needs to be kneaded or something like, you know, something like that. I'm 
trying to figure that out. Um, I'm experimenting with everything. This new morning thing, like maybe I'll start to get up earlier and earlier and then maybe before people start emailing and calling, I'll actually find that I have an hour and maybe I'll, maybe I'll be like you and that will be my um, creative and, moment. I don't know. What happens to you in the evening and, and at night and stuff? I just, I love to turn everything off around 7, 8 p.m. and just like spend a long time making dinner with my, my partner and uh, watch a movie. And I mean, normally I'm quite social, um, especially like the last two years of my life living in Los Angeles, like half of what you do as a producer is just go out for dinner and go out for lunch. So and then, yeah, well, on top of that, I was also dating. So I felt like I I've actually needed this COVID time to like do nothing and be home. Cause I don't think I had done that for a really long time. <laughs> right. So yeah. what does a producer do? What the, what the hell do you do? And, and, and it's amazing that half of it is just having lunches and, and dinners and stuff. It's awesome to me. <laughs> it is awesome. It's, it's, uh, it's definitely a perk if you're a social person. Right. Um, there's so many different kinds of producers. So I am not a line producer and I'm not a money producer. I am like, I can find money or sell projects. And then I hire someone to like manage the day to day of the money. Um, I am more of a creative producer. So I either find ideas or get hired onto ideas um, and pieces of IP that are already ongoing or I find a book or I find a writer with a script and I kind of develop that. Um, I work a lot, like yesterday I spent the whole day, for instance, story editing a 20 page Bible for a project that I'm working on with a writer that I'm quite close with, Kat Sandler. What's a Bible? Um, what do you mean by that? So to sell a TV show, you need a, a what's called a Bible and usually a pilot script. And the Bible is the Bible of that show. So it is what the show is. Um, so, you know, there's a, but there's like, I use a sort of like an eight question template, um, to formulate the Bible. But basically if you ever, if you want to know what the show is, you, you read the Bible. So you like, open the Bible. Yeah. It has yeah, all about the characters, Drake, it has the, the, characters summer, yeah. the episode structures of the first season, the tone, the style, the world, um, why now, why me as the writer or creative team, um, yeah. I think yeah, I, also in, in, in startups, when you're making like a, a pitch deck for something, the big questions are why now and why us? Totally. Um, yeah. It's fun um, that it I don't know over. a lot about that, but a couple no, of No, it's the same thing. It's the same LA question. We're, yeah. we're in the startup game and I'm kind of like, oh, wow, we do the same thing. Like I pitch TV shows, but it's the exact, it's the exact same thing as pitching your company, right. um, you know, to get that seed financing or that like you know, a so, whatever. So when yeah. you're on set and there's like a million people coming at you with questions that you're deftly solving their problems, essentially, like what kind of questions are you solving for them? Like, what are you so doing? Because I'm a creative producer. Um, a lot of my, a lot of the way I work with Graham, who's a showrunner is that I, I am in the writer's room um, usually from day one on shows we work on. So I'm over, I'm, I'm participating in breaking the story, which is what we call it, which is like creating the story and like five to 10 people sit in a room for four months and just make up the story. <laughs> um, and so I'm, I witness all that and we do a lot of problem solving and we put our, we write ourselves into corners and then we change it. So I kind of organically know why something is in the script and uh, what its importance is. And then I also intimately 
prep the episodes with the directors um, and the writer of that episode. So the, between our brain power, we kind of like have decided why everything is being shot the way it is or what's needed or what's happening in the next scene. And so when I'm called on to set, like for instance, on Snowpiercer, it was often like, like up train, down train, where's this character going? Should they go out that door or that door? Like, what is the motivation for this moment? Like making sure that the director is getting the insert of the pen on the table that the character puts in his pocket, because I know that in three episodes from now, that pen is going to be really important. Or, and, but the director um, like doesn't those, know that or what? Or what? Because, they, because, yeah. they do. And in feature films, the director would be doing all of that. Primarily, right. But, but because it shows that there's different directors, right? Yeah, and there's different directors for every episode or every two episodes, and they usually just come in, they do their two episodes and they go, right. um, and they're not there over, overseeing it the whole time, and because Graham as a showrunner can't always be on set or can't always be prepping because he also has to write episodes and be in the writer's room, and you need other people that can manage those things um, and are going to, you know, have the, they know what's happening in the finale, so they know where everything's going and what's really important. Um, and so, of course, we like do that with the directors and often they don't need that, but often they do need mm -hmm. reminders because they also have to make sure it looks cool and the actors are being taken care of and doing their, you know, the, their performances are right and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, it's hard when you come in for a couple of months on a show and you're not organically like part of the creative team and you're kind of, it's a lot to remember in a short period of time. So, um, yeah, that's, that's what I do in that, in that regard. Um, and make sure that we have options. Like, so if a director is directing a scene and they're only doing a couple setups, um, so because they've got a clear vision of like with how they want it to look and flow, you just wanna make sure that the performances are right because sometimes you need varied, especially in TV, you need the flexibility to be able to sit in the edit and like carve out the right things because it's constantly changing. Like. Um, you don't owe, that's why it's so beautiful. It's like such a collaborative art form um, because like 10 people write the scripts, a hundred people make them and then five people edit them, you know? And all those people have ideas that change the course of like the story. Um, right. At least so in the way Graham and I tend to work. Uh, and your job is to make sure, your job is to make sure that everything, like you, you manage that between the, between yeah. the, 10 and you know 105 people or whatever and then i also help manage the studio execs and the uh the like the bosses so all the, about the, the 15 to 20 people that are paying and buying the product i also right. manage that they are happy with what and that's the producing those are the lunches and the drinks and stuff yes yeah. And then also when you're not in production, you want to be meeting writers and you want to be meeting directors and you want to be meeting other producers and execs and like, you know, that's, yeah, that's just kind of part of the, the thing because it's, you, you really, when you start a project, especially, and you're getting that core four or five people to buy into your project or join you to make it happen, kind of probably like a startup, like you're going to be in bed with those people for a long time. Like my documentary, I was like, oh, we'll make this documentary. We'll be done in a year, four years later. You know, right. um, you have to really like each other if you want the day to day to be enjoyable. Like you, you have to like spending time with one another or you have to be able to at least stand to spend time with one another because you probably will end up spending more time with them than your family or your partner or your friends for you know, a while. And then 
as a producer, the project, if it's yours and you own it, it, it's ne it never dies. Um, so, you know, like I still get emails quarterly about uh, like around stuff I have to do with the first four minute short film I ever made. Seriously. Um, yeah. And that's like almost 10 years ago. Um, so yeah. So it's important that you, as much as it's important to network and stuff, it's really important that you also, you know, like to spend time with the people that you're, uh, you know, going to war with. <laughs> and do you have schools of thought for how you pick or red flags or things like that? Like nothing's necessarily specific, but are there ways that you kind of approach making those decisions and thinking about those things? Um, I think it's different because if someone's going to come in and buy something or pay for something or give you financing for something, you can probably accept a lot more um, personal differences than if you're uh, like, you know, like if someone's going to give me a million dollars or something like I'm or, or $80 million, I'm going to, I'm not going to care as much if I like hanging out with them. <laughs> right. um, but if someone's going to be my partner or I'm going to be coming on to their, their script and their idea, I want them to respect and like me and want to spend time with me and my ideas and the way I live my life just like, and I want to do that back because if not, then the organic um, cohesion just isn't naturally there and you're going to have to fight to create it. And you're already going to have to fight so much to get your show made or your project made that you don't want to have to fight on that level either. And when I was younger, I just said yes to everything, like, and everybody. Um, now I don't have like, there's no list that I can like tick off things or anything like that. The, the idea of the project has to get my heart racing, has to be something I know I can love for a long time uh, that I think is important for the world to, um, to have in it because it's a crowded marketplace. And if, I want what I make to like make a difference. Um, and then I want to make sure that that person and I, you know, like, like one another and want to hang out. So that, that writer I was talking about, Kat Sandler, she and I became friends first um, and then collaborators. And now I would call her one of my best friends and we've got three or four projects that we work on together. Some that we co-write, some that uh, are all hers that we're figuring out how, if we should adapt to being TV or, you know, like things like that. And then, that project that I was working on yesterday um, is for another production company. I'm not producing it, um, she, but she got hired to uh, take a piece of IP and write a Bible and create a show for them from it. And um, she asked them to hire me as a story editor so that we could have a mini writer's room and I could help her um, uh, figure out what the show would be. Um, so because that's it, something we do really well together. It kind of so we also like, go away on vacation together. I yeah, like her that much. And right. same with Graham, my other partner, uh, my, who's a writer, the showrunner um, of Orphan Black and Snowpiercer. Like we, like when I first moved to LA, I like lived in his spare bedroom. Like we have, we love, when we go away for our corporate retreat, that's what we call it. We go skiing for four days together. You know, like we're, um, really good friends. Like he feels like family to me. Um, Amazing. Yeah. And it, it feels like you have like a million little projects in the works. Are, are, th are there a bunch of things that like you've worked on that don't work out or like, do you have a kind of a, a school of thought on that? Like, are you just trying to say yes to as much stuff as possible or are you used to, and now you're being more careful and can you speak a bit yeah. about that? 
Yeah, I, I used to say yes to everything. Um, and I think that's really important. Um, you recommend that to people starting out? Especially when they're short films or things like that and just getting experience. And definitely, um, unless you know inside of you, you're like, you know, David Lynch and an auteur and like you just need to sit in your hole and write your, oh, like, you know, your magnum masterpiece. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Um, which wasn't me. Uh, and um, yeah, I recommend that. But now I'm actually actively trying to uh, say no to so, stuff. Yeah, I get so excited by new projects because that's like the most fun part <laughs> is imagining what it could be and getting really stoked about a new idea. Um, but I'm really trying to start to say no because I realize like my attention is going to too many things. And especially because I want to concentrate more on my artistry and my creativity and like my voice um and i'm gonna use this sort of like covid time or try my best to develop that further and give it attention um that it never really got before i'm really trying to say no to things because uh i don't want it to cloud the time and space that those other things need but i i definitely have a a slate of a bunch of projects i've probably got uh, four or five features in different stages um, that you chip away at like yeah a little bit every week or something or I've got two tv shows that um, are uh, sort of like in different stages of development with um, different partners in Canada and the U.S. Um, I have one that I'm like writing myself but I haven't put anything down on paper yet for it it's just like it's what I think about before I go to sleep at night, that kind of stage of it. Um, yeah. So it, it, this is you saying no to stuff. Yeah. I'm trying to, <laughs> I'm yeah. trying to focus. It's is hard, though. Important. Yeah. I, it's hard for me too. It's, it's something that I'm like, I think that, I think it's at it like kind of maybe the stage in our lives too. It's like, you need to actually focus on what's important in the art and skill of it all is trying to figure out, what is important and what isn't like even in the way that I navigate like the minutia of my day I'm starting to really try to figure out how to think about what the most important thing that I can do that day is and just work backwards from there um yeah so yeah focus I, is extremely important it's, it's hard like the hardest part isn't having good ideas and, and and starting new projects the hardest part is like figuring out what's actually worth your time and and, and sinking your teeth into it meaningfully yeah because the new ideas like and that is like i could do that i could start something new every single day you know what yeah. i mean like i it's inspiring it's, it's exciting it's fun it's yeah. dreamy it's not hard like it's not the hard that's not the hard the nuts part. and bolts <laughs> are the hard part yeah yeah the details yeah and you can't actively like see all those things through um when you if you start too many if you've got your finger in too many pots just like you know starting too many books and too, or you know that yeah. kind of thing it's uh it's all the same and it you're it is like you, it's something you have to kind of like think about in your entire day and what's and also what's important like and i think also this time of having to like stay home and concentrate on what a day looks like when you're not getting ready to travel every couple of weeks and going to sets and stuff like that. It's like, Oh, I actually really love cooking. I really love dancing. Oh, I, all these things that I like, they actually reward me in ways that then allow me to concentrate better at, at work, which I, I had kind of forgotten in the, like the hustle and bustle of like the really, of like career, 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 like exciting, like 
this festival, this set, this, that, like, you know, like, um, yeah, it, it's, uh, it's, it's not easy work um, to figure out what you like to do in the stillness, but um, like, it's much, I find it easier to just go, 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 but then you burn out. <laughs> right. Um, yeah. So it's, that balance is crazy. And I really want to figure out that balance as well as I can before I like introduce children into my life, which yeah, I want. That, and, you um, want, you want that? Is that something you're thinking about in, in the near term or the mid to near term or like how well, does. Well, as a 32 and a half year old woman I have, and who wants a family, I have to think about it in the near term. I'm yeah, not like, I, I'm not like, there's no pressure, but I'm like, okay, you got about 10 years left, like at the max. So this is a like? this is a topic that I want to speak more about on this podcast because it's it's so specific to women in their 30s. And I'm not a woman unfortunately, so I don't feel whatever pull you're talking about like I don't feel it, not the not the pull to children but the pressure actually that the t the clock is ticking. So maybe I I mean can you speak more about that to people that you know that aren't like me that actually might be experiencing the same thing? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think, I think any woman feels it, even if they've decided they don't think they want ch children, just because it's or like just ingrained. Like we have a ticking clock. It's it's just is what it is. It gets harder to uh, even have a child in your late thirties and forties. I mean, I found my friend gave birth three days after she was um, thirty five last year. And uh, she was a geriatric, they called her a geriatric pregnancy. Like, that's so, so depressing. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, it's just kind of something that floats around and it has to be part of my planning of my career and my life. And, the, um, and because if I just let it go, I, I might not think about it. And then it could be too late or it could be really hard. Um, yeah, and I, you know, breaking up with my partner of eight years was like going through a divorce and that happened two years ago. And, um, it was, it was weird cause I wanted to give myself time to just date casually and have a lot of fun. And I, I did do that, but in the back of my mind, I was still like, but you're 31, you're soon going to be 32. Like, mm. you, you know, I don't know. Like it's just always there and I've always wanted kids. And like, even though the, you know, in my opinion, the, planet is you know burning in the next hundred years are going to be bizarre and crazy and uh maybe not the best like in my little experience of life like i still want to have babies and maybe that's selfish but i don't know um yeah <laughs> it is what it is um but I, i'm not like i'm not like i must have a child by this age like i don't have a life plan like there's that. no plan right there's and, and, no plan right like you don't want to be in a certain place in your career or something like that. I mean, you're, you're, you have a pretty busy, well, I guess not now because of COVID or whatever, but. It's, um, it's interesting. Like my mom, so when my mom had me, she was 31 and my mom um, is an actress and her career really took off the year she had me. Um, hmm. And like, she was the star of a film that opened the Toronto film festival. And it was at, and it was at Cannes and she had um, like a, three month old at home. Um, and she's always just told me like, you always think that you have to have things figured out and that you, you know, you, she wanted to be in this place in her career before she had babies and you just make it work. And I don't think, I feel like even if I planned, I was like, Oh, I, I will have a baby after I direct my first feature all by myself. And I know the movie I wanted to be in and like life just isn't, doesn't work out like that necessarily. And 
you know, what if you're, what if COVID prevents your movie from happening? Like, I think if you want it and you're in the right place with the right person to do it with, um, you'll never be ready. Though. You'll never right. be ready. Right. <laughs> right. And like, it's crazy that you'll never have enough money. You'll never like have enough stability. In my opinion, like I don't, I don't think that there's like a number I could attach to those things that is going right. to make it any easier. Right. Um, no, yeah. and parents. I was are... raised on sets, so you know, right. my mom Parent... was gone half the time of my life. So right. and it's fine. Parents okay. are some of the most capable people because they have to be, right? I mean, this is what at least the sense that I get. Um, yeah. It's funny that our parents, or that we're like kind of at the age now where our parents had us. And it's so, so to be a person that doesn't have a kid right now and you're reaching the age where parents were having kids, it's kind of, I don't know, puts, puts things in perspective, makes you scared a little bit. And I'm not sure how I feel about it really. Yeah, same because it's like, okay, so I really liked my parent, the life that my parents had, um, minus, you know, my yeah. father dying at age. 57 but right. I really you know other than that I'm like oh that's a that was a really great like life that's a plan I could I could get behind but like that's not going to happen because my mom would I would have already had a I'd have a one-year-old right now you know and it's kind of like oh so I guess it's not written my plan's not written now I don't know how to follow it and I also I I personally have found that um like that's a hard thing in a relationship with a parent too is when you start to live differently than they did um they don't understand how to parent you anymore really um well they shouldn't and, be parenting you anymore anyway no i know but e even giving you advice i mean i'm really close right. with my mom but you know it's just it's a funny you you start to see them like as the humans that they they are and not them like the mom because you're like oh you don't have all the answers for me because i'm not doing it the way you did and that's okay um Third, just makes, I, yeah. yeah, third just as fucked up as, as we are. And no, nobody knows the answers. I think that's one thing that, <laughs> that we're learning. I think Definitely. everybody, yeah, there's imposter syndrome all over the place at every, at every age and every stage, I guess. Yeah. Um, and I think when you've lost a parent like you and I have, you, I think that becomes extremely clear. Um, I don't yeah. know if you felt that way, but. Well, speak to it. I mean, talk, talk to me about it. Like, well, I guess like I was so young when I lost my dad and my sister was even younger and I was really angry about that for a really long time. Um, and kind of like the solace I would find is that like, I would be like, you know, at a party, I'm like 23 or 24 and just having a terrible time because everyone's having such a good time and they're not thinking about the fact that like they've lost a parent and you're like angry about it. And the only, like, I would be like, but it's coming for all of you, you know? And I used to be really kind of like right. internally spiteful for everyone. But then I kind of crossed a place in my grief where I realized like, oh, I'm actually like, this is a weird, weirdly a gift that I have that I felt this so young because like, I know life goes on and I know that like, I know it's coming. And I, I think I like live life a bit more um, in the moment because of it. And uh, um, that it could come at any moment for anybody like, that they might be gone. And I, 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 that felt like a, well, like a big sense of relief, um, personally in my, in my like trajectory of grief. Um, and, uh, my, my, my path of grieving my father and all of that kind of stuff. And just that realization of that, like wisdom, it kind of gives you, um, yeah. Do, do you still yeah. think, I mean, do you still think, uh, but I could die. Like, do you think like, when you say goodbye to somebody, 
you know, you think about them dying and so you make you be extra present for the goodbye or something or like wh- where does it where does it crop up in your life nowadays, given that it's been well, 10 years and it crop it crops up a lot in my new relationship because I'll be like, you didn't you're not you're not going to kiss me goodbye like you could get hit by a car or like a really bad black humor joke and he does not like it right. at all. He said like, don't say that. Like did you call your mom today? Like it could be the last time you could or like right. uh, you know that kind of sense of humor because I I find that if I can't like laugh about it or think about it that way um I would go insane personally. Uh but it does make people feel uncomfortable and it crops up in funny weird ways sometimes um, I, I couldn't anyway. agree more I, I think about it all the time and I say stuff about it and it's like a downer to people <laughs> and then I can understand why it is but it's it's just it, I'm not trying to be a downer or make things positive it's just very matter of fact actually it's quite stoic in in, ter- in, in the like in the philo- philosophical sense it's just it is right like people are dying people can die it's it's happened we've seen it up close and yeah. uh, we should be aware of it Cause it's fucking real. Yeah. And cause it's real. And I don't want to pretend like it's not real because that makes it worse. Um, right. It makes it harder, I think. Um, but it definitely alienates people that haven't lost people. And I've lost all my grandparents. Like I've lost all of my, like sort of the older generation in my family, but one, um, my great aunt is still alive, but that's, you know, that's kind of, so, uh, um, I'm like, I don't want to say I'm used to it, but cause I don't think you ever get used to each loss is totally its own different experience. Um, but yeah, I, I find that it can alienate people that haven't lost grandparents or haven't lost anybody close to them because um, they get so uncomfortable and they think that you're bringing it down or pointing something out that's, you know, not supposed to be spoken about. Um, yeah, and it's, gotta, it's a big thing. Uh, I think it should be talked about more. <laughs> oh, for sure. Uh, yeah. I think yeah. we'd all be more prepared for it if we did speak about it more. And then I also cherish, like you said, like, do you say goodbye to people with a bit more like, you know, um, thought and a bit more, uh, present. I try to, I try to remember that. Um, so your dad is very much 10, 10 years on still in your thoughts. I mean, do you, yeah, yeah. Straight up all the time. I don't cry about it. Like I used to, or, uh, very often, not the way I, I kind of used to, it doesn't haunt me. It doesn't make me feel, uh, stagnant or like um like most of the time now when I think about him it's like in good ways and I love to talk about him um because it's kind of makes them still alive uh in certain ways and I love when I get to see one of his old friends and hear something like a new thing about him it's yeah I like that one of the best something you didn't know it's kind of like finding a new picture of them or something you know it's 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 pretty amazing um but yeah I uh He's, he's just always there. I, I want to be more like him. He like in my life. So, um, I, you know, I don't think days go by where I don't think about him, think about him, but right. kind of like, you know, you, you're, even when your parents are alive and you don't talk to them for a few weeks or something, you do think they do come up into your consciousness, I think. And it's kind of the same with, with him. Do you want to be, when you say you want to be more like him, what do you mean? He was just um, like a mentor to a lot of people and like always was very, very truthful to himself and his artwork, like almost to a fault. Um, like he had no, he could not BS. Uh, like there was no bullshit. Um, there was no lying, even white lies. Like he couldn't even tell you you looked nice in a dress, you know, if he didn't. Um, 
and I just really respect that. And he was so respected in the theater world and by his peers and colleagues, um, hard worker. Uh, yeah, I just, I want to like challenge, uh, channel that more into my everyday life. And, you know, are you, are uh, you mentoring anybody? Do you try that? Uh, yeah, I try, I try to do that. Yeah. I always, um, I do my best to always meet with people that ask me to, um, are, are you at the or, point in your career where people are seeking out your time and advice about stuff? That's a yes. good, that's how I feel like, you know, you made it actually. <laughs> yes. Yes. I'll, quite often. Actually. That's awesome. Yeah. And so you try to make time for that. Uh, yeah, I do. I definitely do. And I try to sign up for it. Like, um, especially, uh, with sort of like the, re um, I've been doing a lot of like, I guess we, we could call it advocacy work or something like that. Like well, there's the producer pledge. I wanted to ask. Yeah, exactly. So the producer pledge and, um, impact, which is a new nonprofit that, um, I'm sort of part of the, um, group of people behind, uh, Bentley. No. Bentley. <laughs> <laughs> no, come lie down. Um, yeah, so, and that all kind of was born out of the resurgence of um, the Black Lives Matter and sort of the realization of the white supremacy that um, has created the Western world that we, that I live in um, and operate in. And, uh, you know, kind of all of that brought, there was a lot of mentorship opportunities that people were starting to push and I signed up for all of them and I, I don't know, I, I did like a speed dating mentorship thing this summer and then I think there's like three or four uh, other people that I've met a few times and I just will always, I appreciated it so much and still do when people that I ask for advice meet with me or people that I, you know, um, that I consider mentors, like give me time and I, I and it helps so much, especially when I was younger. Um, uh, and starting off that I, I want to pay that back. And, and if anyone thinks things that I can say are helpful, um, you know, uh, why not? There's no rule. There's no, no one can teach you how to be a producer. Like no one, there's no books. There's, there are books, but there, there's not really like every project is different. Every producer is different. That's why it's hard to explain what a producer does. Um, and so if you can share that knowledge, uh, you're only going to get you're only going to be better and you're going to find other producers that are better. And, um, so yeah, I truly believe in that. Um, what advice yeah. would you give to someone seeking out your mentorship? Oh, um, what are some of the things you find yourself saying over and over again to people? I guess maybe people looking to break in. Is that what a lot of the things you have is people trying to kind of have the, have the yeah. career that you're, that you presently have? Yes. I tell them that the only reason I was promoted to being a producer by season three of Orphan Black um, was because I asked for it after season one. And uh, if you don't ask for things or you don't tell people that that's what you want, you'll never, you'll never get it. And the worst that they'll ever say is no. And when you are able to to realize that the no, one no, as much as it hurts, is just a no. Like the best thing that could happen is that they remember that you asked for it and then they see you grow and they see you mature and then they give it to you another time. Or they remembered that you wanted something like that. And when someone needs a junior producer to shepherd a short film, they think of you. Or, um, you know, and I actually, I learned that from my mother who always asked for things and has 
mentored a lot of people and always asked for what she wanted um, and, you know, has gotten a lot of no's in her life, but she's also gotten some huge yeses. And I think I tried to bring that to like every part of my life. Like when I was dating in LA, I was like, well, why don't I just ask that person out? Like the worst they're going to say is no. And hmm. like, big deal. Um, you know, the worst they're going to say no for a raise is the worst they're going to say if you ask for a raise is no. Like, right. I don't think if you ask for a raise, you're going to get fired. If you do it properly, you know, if you're, if you act entitled to that, then of course, maybe not. But I just think it's some, um, we're so scared of no's and I'm scared of them too. Like, especially trying to become a director right now and go, taking people that think of me as a producer out for coffees or calls and pitching myself as a director. It's like terrifying. Right. Cause I'm asking them to look at me in a totally different light. Um, and it's, and, it's that, and that's just something you're like, eh, Hey, I'm a director now I'm directing <laughs> this. And you yeah. start, I mean, right. Like you start calling yourself a director, you're trying to direct something. And so now people have to take you seriously about it or, or, or it's their or, prerogative. Yeah. Or not, but worst they can say is no. Right. Exactly. And if you don't say it about yourself or your dreams, then like no one's going to say it for you. No one was going to come around and like tap me on the shoulder and be like, you should uh, direct this episode. You know, like no one's going to do that. No one was going to, you have to ask for it. No one was going to make me a producer on Orphan Black if I didn't ask for it. it it's you know, particularly, the first time they said no. The first right, time they said no. Right. It took another season or whatever, two seasons. It took another season. And it also took me um, uh, doing whatever Linda and like, and producing a couple of short films. So mm. they saw that I was hustling on the side and actually getting things made that were good that mm. I was producing on my own and they were, that were smaller. And they're like, okay. The combination of those two things. Um, yeah. Yeah. So I give people those two pieces of advice. I think when it's, you're starting it, off, go make, 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 say yes to like the short film, say yes to being wardrobe, saying yes to do like the little, to being a PA, like just try and meet as many people as you can and like attend all the parties and that you can get invited to it. Go to all those things and talk to people and, you know, tell them what you, what, who you are and what you want and things will that will organically like make things happen for you. Um, if you're also hard at worker, <laughs> you have to still work. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. Um, yeah. It's particularly inspiring, I think, because I, I, I don't know the exact statistic, but I'm pretty sure that a meaningful part of the gender, a meaningful like percentage of the gender pay gap is literally because women don't ask for higher salaries than men do. Men like just do it. I don't, I mean, I don't know, I don't have an exact reference for it, but so the fact that you're kind of inspiring younger people to just ask for stuff, I think is extremely powerful and impactful. It's great. Yeah. I, I really think it's, it, it's because we don't, I, yeah, the pay gap thing is, is I think it's staggering to think that it's because we're not encouraged to like ask for what we want or expect to get what we want. Right. And like, where I don't know if men are taught this differently or something, but like women are not taught, we're taught to like wait, you know, like we're taught not to ask boys out. We're taught not taught, like we're, we're supposed to wait and be asked out. You know what I mean? And that kind of energy doesn't, if, if you're taught that from a very young age, like you internalize that and then you apply it to everything in your life. And I'm always like, when a girlfriend of mine gets a new job or I'm like, I'm like, you know, you can negotiate that salary. Like right. you don't have to exactly. take the first offer. Like, tell me you negotiated that. Like, please, please tell me. Right. Um, and, and again, like if they can't pay you more, they'll just come back and say, no, sorry, this is what you get. Right. <laughs> and, and if you want the job, you 
take the job and that's fine, but at least you asked. Um, so yeah. That's amazing. And sometimes yeah. I ask for things that people are like, what? Right. You ask for crazy things, <laughs> but, but whatever. Yeah. You miss a hundred percent of the shots you don't take, right? That's a yeah. Canadian hockey reference for you <laughs> from Wayne it Gretzky. Certainly I believe. Is. Yeah. Yes. Um, yeah. Or it might even be from his, was it Wayne Gretzky or was it his dad? I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. That's Canadian for sure. Yeah. Either way. <laughs> um, and do you think things are changing for women in, in your line of work or in others? I mean, do you get a sense that they are, are there more women that in, 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 in roles in producer roles and director roles and things like that, that you're encountering? Oh yeah. I don't, I never, I have never thought that the, in the producing part of the business, there are lots of women and at the studio level and at the exact level, like tons and tons of women where there aren't women is, and, and there are still huge gaps is in directing and writing. Um, and it's, it's, uh, it's changing, but it's, you know, it's still, the numbers are still quite staggeringly low, especially when it comes to uh, people investing the big bucks. So like, you know, the big movies, the movies that make, you know, a billion dollars into the box office and stuff are still, you know, 2% or something or, or probably less are less than that are directed by women. Um, Those movies suck though. I've, I know, I know, but the paychecks don't. Matter. Right. The paychecks don't. <laughs> um, yeah. I but, think about there's Catherine Bigelow and Greta Gerwig. I mean, they're amazing directors, right? But there's two and they're both white, you That's know, it. and there's like well, one there black woman, Ava DuVernay. Yeah. Um, and that are like household names. And so that there's a lot of work to do there. And actually a lot of this COVID time um, I've filled and this, this kind of space I've filled up with, um, you know, working, especially in the Canadian media landscape with the producer pledge and impact to uh, really examine and change like the um, racial makeup of who gets to tell stories and at least in the Canadian media um, and, uh, why it, it, you know it's great about four years ago in Canada we started to mandate uh, gender parity so telephone for instance um, who's a funding body here has to give 50% of the films that they order a year to female-led uh, female writers and directors um, and the CBC also um, if you have a TV show with them 50% of your directors have to be women which is awesome but now it's time to apply that to all the other marginalized communities um, because you can't, you can't give 50% uh, of your money just to white men and 50% just to white women. You have to include all sorts of stories. Um, yeah. So yeah, spend a lot of time really like looking at that and thinking about that. And um, for me, the mentorship and the uh, barriers to entry into our biz, into my business is really hard because, you know, I was born to actors. I was born on sets. So I had an, an innate understanding what a producer was and what all the jobs on a set were. Most people don't. And, uh, you know, a lot of people from different um, races and uh, cultural backgrounds have no idea that there are like incredible middle-class or higher jobs that exist, that are trades, that are that they can um, accessible, break into. that you, you can break into. And you can use to, to break into, yeah. Yeah, and we have to figure out how to open up that and not keep it a secret. Yeah. You should, it sounds like you should write a book probably in the next year. <laughs> oh my God. What kind of book? <laughs> I, I don't know. To, helping people uh, do this. So, and wh why yeah. do you want to be a director? What, what's, where's, where's the pull? Where's the motivation there? 
I, I just, I love directing. The, the few times I've done it have been probably the, my most rewarding times ever on set. What were those um, things? Ever making things. It was called, I co-directed a film called The Definites, which was a micro budget. I also produced it and, and um, was a, you know, part of the story writing process. Um, uh, so story by credit. Um, and that was a film that we made for $100,000 Canadian and um, was an insane three-year process. Um, the whole film takes place over a weekend and we shot it over 13 days spread over three years because we were constantly raising money just enough to like shoot in a location. It's, it's and, like, yeah. it was, wow. I'll never do it. I'll never do that again, ever. But again, if you're starting off and you're young and you've got the energy and say yes. Right. <laughs> um, but I learned a lot, but I, and I just, I love telling stories visually um, and I love actors and there's nothing more I love than seeing all of the pieces come together on set. And um, I'm a really visual thinker. And I realize that like when I read a script or read a book, I like, I see it. Um, and I also have realized that when I was younger, like I used to always like direct my friends and make believe, you know? And I used to be kind of like the one telling people what story we were going to inhabit. And um, I think all of that is just sort of my favorite. I, that's my favorite part of work is um the collaboration and the and the making of the thing and i really want to do that with um my life Amazing. And, uh, yeah and i and i don't want to always be the the producer like i the i'm in it for the creative part and so much of producing ends up not being creative and um you know uh you're the idea short <laughs> yeah yeah and i want to make sure that i uh, carve out space to um to do that, to be a storyteller in that, in that capacity. Amazing. So, um, are there any books or quotes or anything that like that, that you recommend or want to share or something? I mean, right now I'm literally reading a book called story by Robert McKee. It's pretty good. <laughs> um, you know what? I think, um, I don't, I don't have like, um, I think I gave you my favorite quote, which is the, you know, uh, say yes and uh, ask yes. what you want. <laughs> yeah. um, and the worst they'll say is no. And I kind of, um, that's, I kind of try that's to live by, by those, those things. Um, and they've taken me to a lot of crazy places and have gotten me quite far. They've also probably made me make some really irresponsible decisions but meh, awesome I'm, I'm all right <laughs> right well that's what it's all about that's that's where you've gotten where you are and you're you know so in, do you have expectations for the next decade i mean you're hoping to get into directing that's one of the like and maybe some babies yeah that's what it sounds like to me yeah i have two features that i really want to i want at least one of them to be shot in 2021 that's my main my main goal, um, and then, um, and, and babies. And then I really, really hope I get the opportunity to, um, episodic, do episodic directing for, um, other people's shows. It, it's so funny. I've like hired episodic directors and I've, I've been like, I've worked with them so intimately and now I really want to experience what it's like to be one. Um, so I really want those things to happen and, uh, yeah. And, 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 and babies. And yeah. then we'll see. I want to build a company eventually, but um, I used to think that that's what I wanted to do right away. And I've really realized in the last year, I don't want to be responsible for paying people's um, 
like I don't want to run a company. I want to, I want to leave room for the next decade to be more in the creative seat and then probably concentrate more on um, creating that reputation and then be able to combine the producing and the, and the business side of it with that probably with more in my forties. Um, and probably I'll want to not be rushing off to like different sets around the world when I have like, you know, hopefully like a couple of kids that need little babies. (laughs) And then I'll might know what kind of company I want to run more. Like, do I want one that scales up and, you know, is something that is producing five or six shows a year or, or do I want something that's going to be boutique and small? And um, so right now it's very small and I I'm happy with that. Um, I feel like so many people I see in my business that want to be creative and then end up with these big companies don't really get to be creative anymore, you know? So I'm trying to be quite conscious about that. Amazing. Well, we appreciate intentionality on this show and I think that uh, this is a great place to stop. We're excited to see what this year of, you know, thought inside your apartment or whatever brings you. And we're excited to see what this <laughs> next next decade of creativity and directing and all that brings and babies maybe brings you. And we'll probably have to check back in with you, Mackenzie. So I appreciate uh, all of this. It's been awesome. Um, well, thanks. It's sometimes really nice to talk about this stuff and because you realize Oh, I maybe got more shit figured out than I thought I did. <laughs> yeah, you have a lot of stuff to impart. I'm sure you'll hit another couple of crossroads on your way. And, you know, in 10 years, we'll have some exciting new, uh, you know, lessons for you to impart as well. So I look right. forward well, thank to that. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you, Mackie. Mackenzie Donaldson, her new documentary feature, right? Citizen Bio mm-hmm. is out October 30th. Where can people find you, Mackie? So in the, in the States, you can watch it on Showtime. Um, and in Canada, it will be on, uh, Crave, um, uh, and it will also be out day and date in the UK and Australia, but I don't have the places yet. And then it will be worldwide available, um, over the next few months after that, um, as different territories, uh, pick it up. So, um, show time. And where can people find you specifically? Oh, me. Um, you can find me on Twitter or Instagram. It's at Mackie GD. My Instagram is private, but like I basically let anyone join. Um, so don't be afraid to ask. Uh, strangers. Yeah, exactly. Um, worst I'll ever say is no. Yeah. The worst I'll ever say is no. And I say yes to bots all the time by accident. Right. So you'll probably get through. <laughs> um, yeah. That's probably the best place to find me. Twitter okay. or, or Instagram. At Mackie GD. Citizen yeah. Bio out October 30th. Mackenzie Donaldson, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Max. Visit living30.blog for more episodes and blog posts and other things like that. And please share feedback. And as always, have a good one. The worst the lover says is no. Thank you, Mackie. Bye. Thanks again, everybody, for listening. Make sure to get in touch at living30.blog. Let's make this an unbelievable decade. Until next time, I'm Max Finder, and this is Living 30.